This is an ABC News special. COVID-19, what you need to know. Here is ABC News correspondent Aaron Katursky. Memorial Day weekend is looking a lot different because of coronavirus, which has replaced traditional beach-going, barbecues, and public ceremonies with socially distanced alternatives. For many Americans, just venturing outdoors can feel daring, risky, even luxurious. In time for the weekend, the National Park Service has been reopening some of the most popular national parks that were off-limits during the pandemic. We're joined by the Secretary of the Interior, David Bernhardt. I know you've been traveling to some of the nation's best-known parks. How's the reopening going with staffing and social distancing? You know, the last two weeks, um, I've had a chance to be in uh, Virginia, Tennessee, North Carolina, Ohio, and Pennsylvania um, as we've begun to uh, develop and actually implement our plans to return access um, of our national parks um, uh, to the American people. And and I feel um, incredible that we've been able to, by and large on our public lands, if you look at BLM lands, Fish and Wildlife Service lands, and most of our park uh, units, we were able to uh, maintain a degree of access um, in the majority of, of those uh, lands. And, um, and now we're expanding that. You know, when we talked last, we talked about our national parks uh, telling and reflecting America's story. And um, those stories, I think, are more important in times like this than otherwise, uh, to be honest. Um, each of these sites, um, you know, provides an opportunity for reflection, rejuvenation, solace, and also highlight the challenges uh, that America has overcome in the past. I mean, I was at Gettysburg, which is, you know, phenomenal to stand on those fields. And we were able to maintain uh, the trails uh, accessible across uh, throughout Gettysburg during this period of time. I think a lot of people will be out utilizing us this summer. Those of us who have been cloistered in in small spaces could use a bit of the great outdoors. Can you say when all the national parks will return to, I guess, normal or whatever passes for for normal these days? Well, so my my view on this and the direction we've given, um, um, various facilities are located in areas with very different situations. the situation in New York is different than the situation in uh, Wyoming. And so our direction has been, look, we want you lined up just a step behind um, every governor. So if you're in a place that, well, where you're at, things are going to come back more slowly than, say, you know, a place where really the impact of this has been very, very minimal. Uh, but even there... Um, you'll see you'll see changes. Um, it will vary park by park, um, facility by facility. Honestly, would you look ahead to July fourth? Because we know the president has said he's going to fireworks at Mount Rushmore. He still wants to have salute to America in Washington. Are those events still going to move forward? Uh, we are anticipating that they'll go to move forward. Um, you know, things could change, but the salute to America was a wonderful event last year. Right now, we're, you know, coordinating uh, with the White House. Um, uh, We have uh, folks uh, working very closely with the governor of 
of South Dakota. And my expectation would be that we have um, an event on the mall um, and certainly the Mount Rushmore. We've worked very hard uh, to get an environmental document uh, completed uh, so we could proceed with that. So I'm, I'm anticipating that those events will um, take place. Now, um, the structure of them and the people, I, I, my best example might be uh, two weeks ago. It's my belief that groups of people have decided that, that their colleagues, and maybe they're a family member, maybe it's a cohort of workers, but whatever it is, they've decided in some way that they are comfortable with social distancing with them in a very narrow space, so maybe like three feet. Clumps, so like family units or groups that were together, and then space, and then individual and space, and another clump and space. And so that would change um, maybe the capacity of certain things. Um, and, and obviously we would want to encourage that. So there could be some changes, um, but, but I, right now I'm anticipating that those will go forward. Interior Secretary David Bernhardt, our thanks to you. Black Americans and Latinos are nearly three times as likely to personally know someone who has died from the virus than white Americans. A new ABC News Ipsos poll found 30% of black adults and 26% of Latino adults said they knew a coronavirus victim, compared to 10% of white adults. This week, ABC News has been looking at the disparities of the pandemic as part of a series called A Nation Divided. And we're joined now by Dr. Mary Bassett from Harvard University, where she leads the FXB Center for Health and Human Rights. What's the pandemic showing us about this country? Well, all epidemics track along the fissures of our society that reflect societal failures, not personal failures. And by that, I mean the conditions of life uh, for many people are not the result of poorly considered personal choices. You don't choose to live in a neighborhood that's unsafe or doesn't have grocery stores. That's a neighborhood that you can live in when you work a low-wage job. And a whole bunch of policies over the last 40 years particularly have stripped working people of their rights. We have fewer and fewer working people who are protected by unions, uh, have made health care costs astronomical, and it's a risk for all of us. If there's anything that shows that we're all in this together, it's a highly contagious uh, virus for which we have as yet no vaccine or no cure, and which travels by people breathing. And the uh, virus, which doesn't care what race you are or what class you are, it's looking only for a human body that it can infect and replicate in, uh, but it's opportunity to get to people and infect them. All of that is filtered through the realities of race and poverty in our society. And that's why we're seeing these different patterns of infection in different neighborhoods, different communities? Where you can see much higher rates among people who are essential workers, among people working in meatpacking plants, among people who live on Native American reservations who have, uh, you know, a third of them have no running water, uh, and uh, neighborhoods like the South Bronx, which for generations now uh, have had high, high rates of social deprivation. That was there before 
this novel coronavirus reached us. And uh, we are seeing it all very vividly displayed now. Is that why the United States, the wealthiest nation in the world, is experiencing the worst of the pandemic? Did we just forget about the people that we knew were vulnerable to this? You're right that the United States is in the midst of the worst outbreak. We now have over 1.5 million people and we're rapidly approaching 100,000 deaths. Uh, in many ways, we could have predicted this. The, all of the things that I've mentioned, the rates of poverty, the uh, lack of uh, protected uh, paid leave, the fact that people continue to go to work even if they were sick because they couldn't afford to miss a day's work and pay their rents, the housing crisis. That is, all of these things were structural in origin. Uh, they weren't related to whether how well people took up the valued interventions of hand washing or wearing face masks, all of which are things that individuals can do. But individuals can't simply decide to have paid sick leave and can't decide that they will go to the hospital and not have to pay uh, a bill that may be much more than they can afford to get health care. This all were part of the way we've structured our society, and I hope that we'll come through this with a society that better meets human needs so we won't be vulnerable, or at least not as vulnerable, to this type of outbreak uh, in the future. Dr. Mary Bassett, New York City's former health commissioner, now at Harvard University. Coronavirus has devastated the nation's nursing homes, and particularly some of those that are home to the nation's war veterans. At the Soldiers' Home in Chelsea, Massachusetts, 38 residents have died of COVID-19. Suffolk County District Attorney Rachel Rollins said they served in two wars, an armed conflict and a global pandemic. Her office began an online memorial with links to photographs and biographies of those 38 soldiers who served in World War II, Korea, and Vietnam, and died while battling an unseen enemy at home. I'm Aaron Katursky. Now over to Amy Robach. Thanks, Aaron. With me now is our Dr. Jen Ashton. And Dr. Jen, the majority of the country now in various stages of reopening. And one of the concepts that's being considered both here and in the U.K. and Germany is that of immunity passports. What do we know about this oh, concept? This is going to be really interesting if we hear more about that occurring in the U.S. For some historical perspective, um, Amy, back in the 19th century, we actually used them here in New Orleans um, in the setting of yellow fever, fever. And people were either described as um, acclimated or unacclimated, whether or not they had been exposed or infected or not. Back in April of this year, the World Health Organization cautioned against using immunity passports for COVID-19 because at this time, the testing is just not reliable enough to do that. And right now is when we usually say what we know, what we don't know. But right now we're going to ask what issues oh. generally are there that this concept raises? Well, this is where it goes well beyond the medical and scientific. There are a plethora of issues. This is a complicated issue. First of all, true immunity to COVID-19 is unknown at this point. Um, the antibody tests that we see so much um, coming into mainstream right now are unreliable. We do need to test more people. If we're going to use this as an immunity passport in the country, we're going to have to potentially test the entire country. And then there are privacy issues. And unfortunately, there are even 
even possible discrimination issues if this becomes used, you know, mainstream. So really a lot to consider. I here. see you shaking your head. Your body language is speaking volumes, <laughs> yeah, Dr. I Jen. Just, um, <laughs> the verdict is out for yes, sure. Yes. Well, we'll be checking back in with you in just a bit. Well, Nebraska has been easing coronavirus related restrictions since early May, but the state is still seeing an increase in cases. And now the state has around 11,000 cases with more restrictions set to expire at the end of the month. Here to discuss his state's handling of the COVID-19 crisis is Nebraska Governor Pete Ricketts. Governor Ricketts, thanks for being with us right now. And first, just tell us why you decided to ease health restrictions, even as we've continued to see an increase there. Well, actually, the rate of increase in the number of cases in Nebraska has been falling for the last couple of weeks. And what we really have been focused on is preserving the health care system. That's what uh, all the public health officials told us uh, a couple of months ago was really our bellwether is to make sure that we had the hospital beds, ICU beds and ventilators available for everyone who would need one. We've been able to do that very successfully here in Nebraska. And one of the other things they told us a couple of months ago is if you leave the restrictions in place too long, people will start ignoring them. Mm -hmm. So what we have to do is find that right balance uh, to be able to start loosening restrictions while still preserving the health care system. And that's what we're seeking to do. Yeah. And speaking to that, you announced that on June 1st, you're going to move into phase two of easing those restrictions for most of the state, meaning bars and movie theaters will be opening back up. Do you feel like this is the right speed to be moving in this direction? Yeah, absolutely. So we are taking this a step at a time. We loosened restrictions starting May 4th. We gave it a couple of weeks to see what kind of data would happen. Again, as I said, our uh, rate of infection has actually been declining over those two weeks. And uh, our hospital system is actually stable. Uh, we're keeping an eye on the hospital system in Omaha. But we feel that we can continue to loosen restrictions. Again, just take this a step at a time. We're doing it cautiously to make sure that we continue to have those hospital beds available. But so far, so good. All right. And your initiative, Test Nebraska, you set it up to help Nebraskans get better access to COVID-19 tests. But there are residents out there who are voicing some frustrations with the program. They're claiming they've been unable to get a test, even though they qualify. Others are questioning the accuracy of those tests. What are you doing to address these complaints? Well, uh, first of all, with regard to getting people to take the test, that's a good thing, right? We've got a number of people who want to get the test and we're ramping up the capability to be able to do that. We've got four teams right now, the four mobile teams are doing the testing, and we're going to move that up to six mobile teams to expand the testing. So I encourage people that if you haven't been able to find this time to schedule, just keep trying back. We'll get you scheduled. And with regard to the accuracy, you know, the Test Nebraska technology that we're using are these polymerase chain reaction machines. This is not new technology. This is what everybody is using. They're 95 percent accurate. So uh, there's there's no uh, nothing different about these machines that would lead people to believe that it's less accurate than anything else that uh, people are doing to test for coronavirus. Now, Governor, five counties in your state have had outbreaks linked to nearby meat processing plants. What are you doing to both protect the employees at those facilities and the surrounding communities? Yeah, actually, working together with uh, University of Nebraska Medical Center, uh, we've established our meat processors COVID-19 playbook. It's a really a book of best practices that really exceed what OSHA and CDC have said. And the idea is to make this best practice what we're doing with all of our food processors. We have calls uh, weekly with them to reinforce what they're doing. We do uh, site visits to be able to help them adjust what they're doing with regard to how people are donning and doffing uh, PPE, what they're doing with sanitizing surfaces, putting up plexiglass between workstations, plastic in lunchrooms, air handling systems, all this to really create these best practices within food plants to take what is admittedly a very difficult situ uh, you know, environment to, 
do social distancing and do the best job we can in making sure that we're preventing the spread of the virus. I know you've got a very big job on your hands. You're continuing to do it. Uh, Governor Pete Ricketts, thank you so much for being with us today. We appreciate your time. Great. Thank you very much. New studies say that Kansas has the largest racial disparity of COVID-19 death rates in the country. African-Americans in Kansas make up nearly a third of the state's COVID-19 deaths, although only accounting for a little over 5% of the state's population. Here to tell us more about the fight to get these numbers down is Wichita Councilman Brandon Johnson. Brandon, thank you for being with us. And I want to ask you first what your reaction was when you heard your state has one of the largest infection and death rates of COVID-19 among African-Americans. Well, thanks for having me. You know, I was uh, greatly surprised to see that Kansas actually ranked uh, close to the top of uh, the deaths in the African-American community. I wasn't surprised about the impact on the community just because of historically the health disparities that we have as a community. Yeah. And you're the council member for District 1 Northeast Wichita. And you say there are a lot of disparities even within districts. So tell us what you're seeing in your district compared to others. Yeah, so District 1 has the largest concentration of the African-American community, and what we saw was the least amount of tests in our community. And so when we see the impact on African-American community, we question why there wasn't enough tests in our community. And we wanted to see both symptomatic and asymptomatic folks have an opportunity to get tested. Some of the recent numbers I just received of over a 1,000 people who were actually able to get tested at one site in our community over the last week, uh, seven of the positives or six of the seven positives positives were African-American. Mm-hmm. So we have a great concern about making sure we have access to testing without the stipulations of having symptoms or, or whatnot. So we can make sure, as you saw, a third of the deaths in Kansas are an African-American community that we can make sure we take care of the folks who may have it. Yeah. And you, you said you're looking into why. Have you figured out the why in all of this? You know, Kansas was really struggling to get tests uh, nationally, and we're finally starting to get a supply in. And the way it was dispersed uh, from the state level in rural Kansas made sense. But when it came down to here in the city, we just didn't have enough. And then we're also trying to encourage other elected officials that uh, actually have the power. So our Cedric County Commission is the Board of Health, trying to convince them to make sure that most of those tests at least kind of start in African-American community. Because, again, it kills African-Americans at a higher rate. And and we just want to make sure that they get tested. Yeah, that makes sense. And and Brandon, I know you've come up with a clever way to get more information out to African-Americans in your community. Tell us what you've done. So we have uh, the Black Alliance, which is a group of our ministerial league, our Wichita branch, NAACP, uh, activists, electeds, uh, all working together in one voice to make sure that we get the message out to the community and let them know how dangerous this is, but also working to get supplies uh, and other needs met and then back out to the community. So we've been able to secure masks for our community. Those will be distributed out uh, by hand, all of us working together. Uh, We're working to get the word out through some of our cultural uh, news organizations, our community voice and others. Uh, So we're really working together. And it's been great to see all of these various organizations that recognize the need and then get the word out. So many lessons learned, but painful lessons that are being learned. So let's look at the bigger picture. What can we do to keep this disparity from happening uh, right now and, and in the future? 
So we're going to have to have a, a gut check as a, as a country when we look at our minority businesses that were mostly struggling before this pandemic with less revenues, less access to capital. We've got to make sure that we truly invest in those. And that's one of the things the alliance is talking about. We've got to make sure that as we're opening up that we address those health needs and so make sure that we have the PPE and the uh, churches and our businesses so that we can protect ourselves. And then going forward, we have to be more intentional about thinking about these vulnerable communities first and making sure that those needs are met so that we all can be equally taken care of. I know you're doing very, very important work, life-saving work there. Councilman Brandon Johnson, thank you for your time today. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Up next right here when we come back, what you need to know, the Q&A with Dr. J. And deep breath, everyone. Our ABC colleague Dan Harris is here with more high-value techniques for facing high anxiety around the workplace re-entry as COVID restrictions begin to lift. Well, it's time now to take a good look at a lot of your medical questions that have been pouring in for our Dr. Jen Ashton. So Dr. Jen joining us now and we'll get straight to the first question. Is there a potential scenario where there are multiple vaccines available to treat COVID-19? Absolutely, um, because we have to remember there are literally dozens of companies and groups worldwide racing for this development. So it is unlikely that it's just going to be one winner, especially here in the U.S. It is possible that we could see two or three, which may actually be beneficial in offloading some of the pressure on manufacturing and distribution. So expect to hear about a couple of front runners and then we'll see uh, who, who wins, so to speak. But there could be more than one winner. All right. This next question coming from someone probably in one of our urban areas. Mm -hmm. I live in a high rise. How much risk is there in breathing the potentially contaminated air in the enclosed space of an elevator? I've thought about this too. There is risk. How much? We don't know. Um, We've heard Dr. Osterholm, who's uh, one of the top infectious disease specialists in the country out of Minnesota, say that he sometimes will hold his breath when he gets into an elevator. Again, if people are wearing masks, face coverings, they shouldn't be projecting a lot of viral particles, even if they are infected. But it is a closed space, and we do know that these particles can linger in the air for a couple of hours. So the risk is not zero, but how high it is, we don't know. Yeah, and a lot of people don't have a choice other than to get into an elevator each and every day. All right, next question. If you are wearing a face shield, do you still need to wear a mask? Yes. A mask is really nose and mouth. It's to protect others. The face shield is really to protect you. So... We're going to be donning a lot more (laughs) PPE, but there is a limit. You know, we can't go outside in a full hazmat suit. Right, right. All right. Next question. When it's windy, is there any risk of the sweat from a possible asymptomatic COVID-19 positive person spreading? No evidence that this virus is transmitted in perspiration. Thank goodness. So again, and as we were just talking about in wind, in theory, because of all of that movement, you know, your exposure is less. So this is something I would say. Don't worry about this one. All right. I like it when you say don't worry about this. All right. It's rare these days, but we'll take it. Exactly. Dr. Jen, thank you. And you can submit questions to Dr. Jen on her Instagram at Dr. J. Ashton. Well, just as many of us begin mastering working from home, the return to the workplace is now causing a whole new set of concerns. Co-host of Weekend GMA, author, co-founder, and host of 10% Happier, Dan Harris is here with four steps to take when navigating Back to work. And so welcome. And I know that uh, employers don't necessarily feel physically or mentally safe these days. That's what studies at least show and employees. But much of the problem comes from the inexperience of managers at this point uh, to manage the mental health of their employees right now. And they don't or they don't have the resources. 
to help their employees. So give us some tips on how we can thrive in this new and uncertain work environment we're all in. Well, first tip is self-compassion. Give yourself a break. If you're feeling anxious right now, that probably just means you're paying attention. If you listen to Dr. Jen right now, I'm starting to think, do I need to wear a knight's armor every time I leave the house? Is that what we're getting toward? And we're re-entering at a time where there's so much confusion, so much chaos, and so much disagreement, so much it's become political in many ways. So look, just give yourself a break. For Don't feel anxious about feeling anxious. (laughs) Self-compassion is a way to give yourself the kind of warmth that you would give a close friend. Some people, I'm not going to name any names, but his initials are Dan Harris, struggle with the sort of touchy-feely nature of self-compassion, but there's a lot of science to suggest that it's really good for you. All right. In fact, you have a three-step process to help people who might not be touchy-feely uh, into this practice. What yes. Yes. So first of all, it's not mine. I t- uh, I've stolen this from a scientist, uh, Kristen Neff, who's at the University of Texas. She's really the lead researcher on self-compassion. So she says, if you find yourself in a moment of suffering, it's anxiety, it could be hatred, it could be any number of difficult emotions, the first step is just to know what you're feeling. Mm. Just labeling what you're feeling is kind of like pressing the picture-in-picture button on your remote control. All of a sudden, the story that's taken up the whole screen can be seen with some perspective. The second step is, is to put yourself in more perspective by knowing that millions of people, tens of millions of people, maybe billions of people are feeling exactly what you're feeling right now. And that third step is the self-compassion, to send yourself little phrases, which may seem a little clunky, like, may you be happy, may you be safe, may you be free from suffering. That has been shown through research studies, these little phrases, to have a really beneficial effect on the mind. Just kind of that own personal mantra that you can carry with you to help you get through the tough times. What about self-preservation? Okay, I put this down as self-preservation because so many of us, I said this before, so many of us are feeling a lot of anger at other people who are handling the reopen differently than we are. So maybe we're mad because somebody's not wearing a mask, et cetera, et cetera. That anger is a lot to carry around. So I'm not telling you you're wrong to be disappointed to be disappointed in other people or to be wary of them. But I do think you might want to switch from 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 rage and fury to just sort of compassionate disagreement. And so, again, you can use these phrases in your mind to send compassion. May you be happy. May you be safe to humanize the other person. And again, it's not to invite them over to dinner. It's not to give them to all your money. It's just to say, I disagree with you, but I don't want to carry around this extra load of anger, which reduces my ability to be effective. Yeah, I think that's a beautiful thing to think about when we're feeling that anger. All right, finally, you say self-care. Okay. I like this one. Yes. So <laughs> self-care can be thought of as all the kind of eat your vegetables things that your mom tells you to do, exercise, get enough sleep, uh, eat well, all of those things I, I totally agree with. But self-care can also just be doing something you love. You were talking about volleyball earlier, playing music. A lot of people like knitting or gardening. Now everybody's baking. Uh, I am not. I, I make some toast and pour. Um, But whatever it is you love that you can get into a flow state with, even if it's just watching a little TV, that is a form of self-care as long as it doesn't, you know, keep you up all night. And and we were just saying as a parent, you're also dealing with your children's anxiety as well. Any tips for parents out there who are... Maybe you've been able to handle your own, but you don't know how to guide your children through it. Well, first of all, uh, yeah, we were talking in the commercial break that I have a five-year-old son. We live here in New York City. He's afraid to leave the house. Uh, That can make him very difficult at times. These little phrases of may you be happy, may you be safe, may you be healthy. Just again, it can be a little clunky, but just imagine you were an alien landing on this planet and you went to a gym. 
at, we can't go to gyms right now, but you saw people systematically lifting up heavy things and then putting them back down or running in place for 45 minutes. You would think this is crazy. But these little exercises help us train our body. Turns out the brain and the mind are trainable, too. And these phrases, while seemingly clunky, have been shown in study after study to be very helpful. All right. So give your kids that same tool that yes. you give yourself. I love yes. that. All right. Yes. Dan Harris, thank you. Always great to see you. And we'll see you tomorrow on Good Morning America. It is Faith Friday here at ABC, and with states around the country beginning to open up, a little encouragement about the road ahead could go a long way. And who better to share a good word with us than my next guest? I am joined now by Bishop Oliver Clyde Allen III, Senior Pastor of Vision Cathedral there in Atlanta. Bishop, thank you for being with us. And I know you were hospitalized. In fact, you nearly lost your battle with COVID-19, but here you are today. What would you say to us about the importance of faith during these difficult times? Well, I will say that my experience was so intense. And there were, of course, moments that I didn't think I would make it, you know, fevers every few hours and the tremors. And I was in the isolation ward uh, at Northside Hospital on oxygen. And I will say that small acts of kindness Uh, got me through the nurses and the medical staff there at Northside. Uh, There were small things that they did that really made the difference for me. One day I said uh, to my nurse that uh, I wanted to die at home. I whispered. I couldn't really talk. Mm. I said I wanted to die at home and uh, I couldn't uh, stand to be in this space where I wasn't surrounded by my family. And the nurse came over and rubbed my hand and my my spouse of uh, 18 years had framed a picture that he gave to the nurses to give to me. She put it up in the window ledge and it gave me hope. And so I think sometimes we think that there are these huge things that have to be done uh, to encourage ourselves and to encourage others through this difficult time. But small acts of kindness, small things that are done out of love, out of compassion, out of gratitude, Um, are the things that can carry us all through during this difficult time. That is so beautifully said. I couldn't agree more. And I know and you know so many people out there are still having such a tough time with the isolation and the social distancing. So how have you and your members been faring with your virtual worship services through these times? Well, the truth is this all happened right at the beginning of the time when we decided to go virtual and be fully digital. And I went straight to the hospital. Our next service was going to be that Sunday. And I was, you know, not knowing what to do and not knowing what would be done because I was, of course, hospitalized. And my church, the Vision Church of Atlanta, stepped up to the plate in a way that was absolutely amazing. The innovation and the creativity that was unleashed through our members and the faithfulness and the commitment of people Uh, who are connected to our ministry and church was just beyond anything I could have imagined. You know, what I have found is that challenging times uh, birth innovation, challenging times birth uh, creativity in ways that help to push the vision, our own visions, our, our own missions in life forward. And so our church has been absolutely amazing through our virtual worship services that we have online, of course, and all of the different activities that we have, our leadership and all of the people connected to us uh, have been absolutely 
Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. The energy that you're pouring out is speaking volumes. And I know many people still dealing with loss and fear. You faced it personally. I'm curious, how have you personally changed? And I'm hoping this uh, is a message of hope and encouragement for the rest of us. How have you personally changed after going through your experience with COVID-19? Well, this has taught me to be absolutely um, brave in the midst of challenge. Um, one of the things that my spouse, Rashad Burgess, has helped me to understand, my church, Vision Church of Atlanta, has helped me to understand, and my community, uh, the Black community, L- LGBTQI community, uh, this community that we live in in Atlanta, I'm learning that we are a brave people. This is a brave generation. And this generation will be known for its acts of braveness, it, uh, the compassion and And, you know, when people have lost a sense of faith or a loss of focus or uh, just feeling absolutely discouraged, I would encourage all of us to look at the positive things, the beautiful things, the things uh, that we're seeing that people do that have risked their lives. As I said, it was the medical team at Northside, nurses, a nurse. I I never saw her face. Her name was Hannah, Mm. who just small acts of kindness, rubbing my hand when I had no one to come and see me because of the isolation. It's those things, those small things that are birthed out of being brave. You know, it would take bravery to do the things that we're seeing volunteers and people on the front line doing. And so it takes faith to be brave. And and bravery, I believe, births faith. Stay brave. Be brave. Be bold. Be brave. Oh, I love it. Courage and compassion. Bishop Oliver Clyde Allen III, we are so glad to see you doing so much better. And thank you for inspiring us all. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. Not enough hours in the day. The scramble and struggle for millions of working parents. Some insights on the major new challenges frustrating so many families. Here's ABC's Karen Travers. It is the burning question for working parents like Lori Johnson. How and when will their kids get back to school? The biggest challenge is there's just not enough hours in the day. Lori lives in South Carolina and has two children, ages seven and four. She and her husband are juggling full-time jobs at home, taking care of the kids and distance learning. I was on a, a video call for work just with co-workers, luckily, and the four-year-old walked in naked. Um, to every Everyone thought that was hilarious. I was like... Ralphie is the coordinator of an after-school program in Harlem for kids ages 8 through 12, a program that, like school, has gone virtual during the COVID-19 shutdowns. It was like two weeks in or maybe three weeks in, I started realizing I was really frustrated with my kids and really upset with them um, because I couldn't sit down and get my work done. Ralphie, Lori, and millions of working parents have had to quickly adjust to this new normal without the usual childcare arrangements. There are no networks right now just because of social distancing. You can't rely on your friend or your family or your neighbor or someone across the street. Bridget Schulte is the author of Overwhelmed, Work, Love, and Play When No One Has the Time. She says parents always knew the challenge of work and childcare, but the coronavirus pandemic is pulling back the curtain. I think a lot of it reflects this long-standing notion in our country that family matters are a private affair and that you just need to figure it all out. I don't want to hear about it. Our childcare system, and I say that very lightly, it's really not a system. It's very fragile. 
it's uh, kind of patched together. It's very difficult to find quality care, difficult to afford. Under the White House reopening guidelines, states can choose to open some businesses in phase one, but they cannot open schools until phase two. Schools in 48 states and Washington, D.C. closed for the remainder of the academic year. The extra load on parents doesn't end there. Many summer camps canceled, including the one Lori Johnson's seven-year-old daughter was set to attend. That breaks my heart for her. She's going to be eight years old. Like That means she's going to have to sit inside Monday through Friday all day. So for the foreseeable future, parents are scrambling. And parents who can work from home are simply getting used to doing a work conference call with their kids near them. I mean, we are still expected to put in a full day's work. It's just impossible. Bridget Schulte says working parents need to cut themselves some slack right now. This is not a time for anybody to be able to give 100%. Getting through the end of the day is difficult. Karen Travers, ABC News, Washington. And that's our program for today. I'm Amy Robach. Thanks for listening. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.